0: Hey, friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Flourish and signing up. Patrons get access to all kinds of ex- exclusive material, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. For patrons of Sly Flourish and for those who wish to be a patron of Sly Flourish, I have a new adventure that I'm going to be releasing to Patreon as a gift to you to thank you for your your help in helping me kickstart the kickstarter for the lazy dm's companion that adventure is called the Tomb of the Red Headsman. and it is a Halloween-themed adventure. If you want to get a sneak preview of it, the first draft of it is available to patrons on the Patreon on the Sly Flourish Patreon Discord channel. You can see it in the pinned messages on the Sly Flourish Patreon Discord channel. So, if you want to take a look at it, a couple people have seen it already. It needs a little work. I got I've, I was reading it, and I'm needed like another week, but it will be out before Halloween. So, before Halloween this month, you will be getting a new exclusive. Sly Flourish Patreon Adventure, The Tomb of the Red headsman. So fun stuff. So also right now I am running the Kickstarter for The Lazy DM's Companion. The Lazy DM's Companion is a book of guidelines and inspirational generators to help you prepare and run your 5 e DD D&D games. It is the third book of the Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master series. You have Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. You have The Lazy DM's Workbook and you have The Lazy DM's Companion. And this Kickstarter is also the first time that we're going to be doing full print runs of all three books. So you can sign up and get a hardcover version of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, a special spiral-bound version of The Lazy DM's Workbook, and a softcover version of The Lazy DM's Companion. You can get that all in one package. That's the top tier. $75 to back that. You can also just get like the PDF of The Lazy DM's Companion for 10 bucks. so there's a wide range of different things that you can do. And the Kickstarter has been going really, really well. It's been day five of the Kickstarter. We have 4,800, almost closing in on 4,900 backers. If you are interested in supporting this Kickstarter, the link is in the notes. The link is also in the show notes below for YouTube. I'm not going to talk too much about it beyond what I'm just saying right now, because uh, I'm doing whole other shows. Uh, so if you've been watching the YouTube channel, if you've been listening to the, to, to the podcast, you probably heard uh, some of this. For example, this past week, I put out a Q&A video, the first of probably three, I don't know if I'll get to four, two or three different uh, videos that are focused exclusively on the background of the lazy dm's companion and this kickstarter. So any Q&A, so I already did one, it's got lots of questions. So an easy way to view this is you can go to YouTube and there is a whole big table of contents in here that lets you lets you go to just the questions that you're very interested in. So I highly recommend it. If you are interested in this kickstarter and of course you can click the link and go and support the kickstarter itself. So we just put that out. But yeah, it's been it's been a great week. Fantastic support for the kickstarter, really really outstanding. I'm 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 so excited for this. And uh, just before in our little pre-show, one of the questions was, "How are you doing? Like, how's it feel?" And it feels great. Like you know, one would hope it feels great, right? And it does. Uh, I will tell you, the first couple of days of a Kickstarter are really stressful. And that first day, you 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 want to try to get ahead of everything. And there's so much work to do. There's a lot of stuff you can't do until the Kickstarter launches. And then when it launches, there's this tremendous amount of hype. There's lots of questions about it. You're really worried. Like the thing I always worry about is like, what did I screw up on there? And there were a couple things. Luckily, the things I screwed up were solvable, right? They were all, they were all problems that were solvable. Some of the problems were actually good. Like, why are you only giving away the PDF of these books and not the EPUB versions? And the answer is, oh, duh. Yes, you're going to get the EPUB versions too, right? So little stuff like that. Uh, good things, though, right, in that case. So no bad things. Like nothing where, like, oh man, we really hosed up, right? And it's easy to do when you're doing like offset print runs and you have big investments up front. There's a big concern about that kind of stuff. So all of that went well. But it was, I think, I worked harder on that day on Tuesday than I've worked in my whole life. Like that was a really, really hard day. Worked from morning till night, right, like all through the day, getting everything smooth, and pretty much the next day too. Thursday afternoon. The, the, after the, the initial big drive and hype kind of went through, people's questions got answered. We kind of cleaned up a lot of stuff. Thursday afternoon was the first day that I was like able to take a step back and relax and be like, wow, and just kind of sit back and enjoy what was going on. And that that really was helpful. And then yesterday was Saturday. Saturday, I said, I'm booking the whole day to just for self-care right it's self-care day i'm just gonna relax i can do whatever i want and i decided i guess what i want to do is write a 2500 word adventure for my patron my, my patrons so <laughs> i did that all day saturday which is great because it's like well it's that or you know i don't know i don't know what else i would bother doing that day so it, i didn't feel like a, a stressful obligation to do it but i thought it would be fun to write a to write a Halloween themed adventure and specifically to write it and put it together and 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 give it to patrons of Sly Flourish to thank them because they have helped me tremendously in getting the material ready for the Lazy DM's Companion. So so that's how it feels. It feels really good. New core book. So speaking of all of this, speaking of the big news, of course, this got announced the same day as my last talk show. So it, the, the bad news is like I'm not in the you know i'm not on the zeitgeist right i'm like there's a million videos oh let's talk about the next edition to dean what does this mean right there's a lot of videos i have never been one to try to hit on break i like news and i'm interested in it i certainly listen to other people's breaking news but like i don't feel like the value that i provide to the world is in providing, is in providing news, like, like being the first one to talk about something that D and D does. I don't need that. I'm, I'm fine without it. I would rather, this is a long game with a long history. We're going to talk about this, a long game with a long history. And it doesn't need, you don't have to be up to the minute in order to enjoy this hobby, right? You can, you can take this hobby slow and, and it will be fine. So, yeah, I see I see that there's stuff in here. Uh, there are questions about the Kickstarter that are going on. If you have questions about the Kickstarter, I, I recommend you can go to the comments page on the Kickstarter and do it there. And uh, certain questions that, like, I, you know, bigger questions that come up or questions that come up more than once, I will talk about in the show. Uh, I will talk about in the Q&A. And I will also I'll probably put as a fact. So, yeah. so So, yeah, take a look at that. So, my recommendation for understanding... This topic, one problem that I saw, and Justin Alexander actually posted a tweet that I that I thought was very apt, which was, "Wow, it's amazing." I'm paraphrasing, but along the lines of everybody is really interested in the new version version of D and D, and everybody is assuming it's the thing they want it to be, and that's a really good point, right? That we are, that we are all taking what was a relatively small amount of information and blowing it up and trying to increase the resolution and thinking that we are seeing what is going to happen and the answer is we don't really know so the answer to all of this is what is it going to be like we don't really know i was i have a i have a chat once a week with a bunch of other designers who are many of them in the know many of the many of them have been involved in this industry for many years and we talk about this stuff and it's a wonderful group of people with a lot of really interesting opinions on this and very very informed opinions And we don't know (laughs) right and there's lots of speculation there's lots of like detailed questions like you know they said it was going to be completely compatible with all of the current books well how exactly does that work when you have a book like tasha's does that mean every subclass is going to work the same in tasha's when you have the new builds you know like there's how does that work there's lots of little detail bits right And there's a bunch of assumptions that we can make. There's a bunch of like sort of Bayesian analysis that we can do that kind of gives us a general idea of where we think we're going to go. But at one point in the conversation with my friends, I said, you know, there are five of us here in this chat who are trying to determine what's in the heads of five other people who are making these decisions. And one of the other people said, yeah, and we don't actually know which five, right? It may be the designers, but it may be the marketing team. It may be other executives. We don't really know who's driving a lot of the decisions. And an example of where marketing can drive decisions is Baldur's Gate, Descent Into It was just, I don't know if if this is true. It feels like it was just Descent Into Avernus. And then the marketing team came forward and said, guess what you're going to do? You're going to put Baldur's Gate in there. And then they changed the entire adventure around. So that was one where design was driven. I feel like, I don't know that this is true. It feels like kind of reverse engineering the book it feels like marketing drew dis, drove design decisions which is a bummer right as far as i'm concerned so we don't necessarily know what that means about it is the marketing team actually the one behind driving forward with these books or is this actually the designers got together and said yes we really want to do this i don't know and is it a good idea who knows so what i recommend instead of listening to all the pundits talk about it including myself first of all i'll, I'll give some advice i'm going to offer advice first one is advice is bs right? We don't, you know, we don't know, right? And experts are terrible at predictions. There are Nobel prizes given out to economists to talk about the fact that experts are terrible at predictions. So anytime you hear me or anyone else making a prediction about what this is going to be like, recall that we suck at predictions. It doesn't mean we're wrong all the time, but it means we're probably wrong as often as we're right, you know? So, you know, don't try to don't listen to predictions you know but but we can make some we can make some assumptions right and we can kind of think it through and that's fine i recommend so that's advice number one don't listen to advice and recall i guess this is multiple pieces of advice uh don't listen to advice and don't um assume that people in the know have any idea what's going on unless they're actually the ones making the decisions about stuff like i well, i would bet that if you listen to what the designers of D have to say about it that they actually know what's going on because they're doing it right but pretty much no one else does Then if you want to get information, there is the Future of D&D panel. This was a panel that happened on September 27th. And this is a panel with four of the designers of D&D talking about what they meant. And they clearly were holding things back. They, they, they said way more than I expected, right? I, we, we have another little chat channel that was kind of going on and somebody said, what do you expect? And I said, meaningless platitudes, right? Or contentless platitudes is what I expect to hear for this hour. And I was wrong. Like, you know, they actually talked about specific things and they showed specific things and that was very nice. And we'll talk about those. I would listen to this first And then you can listen to all the pundits and then i'd probably go back and listen to this again i actually did this i listened to it then i read all the pundits and then i went back and listened to it again just to make sure you understand what they are actually saying and not what we all think they're saying right and all the stuff that we think that they're saying so i think that that is is worthwhile so what did did they say right and what they said is that they in 2020 i think it's 2024 somebody correct me right i think it's 2024 in 2024 they're going to put out new core books I think they said that. They also said that these new core books would be backward compatible with all of the books that you already own. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much everything they said, right? Everything else we have to suppose. But even even those things could be wrong. So people in chat, if you would, if you would recall for me that those two things, I know that they said that they would be compatible with your previous books. I know that they said that. And I'm pretty sure they said that they're putting them out in 2024, uh, which means it's a couple, it's like two, it's like three years away. Pretty close, right? So that's, that's all right. Yeah. That's what I thought they said. So, so what does that mean? Well, you know, great, right? Not, does it mean much? I don't know. Like there's lots of questions. I have lots of questions, right? And there's lots of detailed questions, but we won't really know. And I, and they're only going to say so much. I've got lots of questions like what, you know, as a, de, as a designer, right? What about the SRD? Are they going to put on a new version of the SRD based on this? I hope so. I don't know. I wouldn't, I probably would bet against it. Right. And I would bet that we won't ever hear about it. Right. I would bet that A, we're not they're not going to update it. And B, that they're not going to talk about updating it or what they're going to do with it. Because if they're not going to update it, they're not going to say they're not going to update it. They're just not going to do it. So that's like a question I've got as a designer. Then how much does that matter is another question. And the answer is probably not much. Maybe a little. I don't know. Like if I have a book and I use the SRD and I mention that I'm using an Archmage. Will the Archmage stat block change enough between these two versions that the design of my adventure is different because of what they've got, right? That in one side, they have their big spell list. On the other side, they have a much refined Archmage stat block. You know, will they, are they compatible enough that a book that just mentions Archmage is good enough? I'm not sure, right? That's little details like that that I'm, that I'm curious about. And I'm not going to get, that I'm not going to get an answer. I'm not going to get an answer for that. So... Is it, ba- I think, right. We, we, I think I talked about this before my, my, my designer friends and I, I, I think I kind of came up with it and I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just trying to properly attribute this cause I don't think they really brought up this idea, but it felt like there was a four quadrant grid for the designer space that we were concerned about. And on one side you had, is it backward compatible or not? Right. And on the other side you have, do they update the SRD or not? right and it was sort of like this where do we go as designers that are writing for this game depending on these four quadrants right and in one quadrant you have they make it backward compatible and they release an srd and in that case we're like we're great we're gravy we can can keep developing for the game we'll just update to the new srd and we're fine right and it's backward compatible which means all of our old stuff will still work too that was the best possible solution then let's say it's still backward compatible but they don't put in an srd well, because it's backward compatible, that means the old SRD is backward compatible, which means we should be able to write to the old SRD and still write material that's good. And we, you know, we can keep in mind things like the Archmage might be slightly different and account for that without having to violate the SRD and without having to change. The... By the way, as, what's, what the hell is the SRD? What are you talking about, Mike? The SRD is the system resource document. It is part of the open gaming license. This is something that Wizards of the Coast has been putting out since the early 2000s. That lets developers, lets designers of RPGs write towards the rule set of D&D without calling it D&D and still be fully compatible without having to get a commercial license to do so. You can just do it. And you can use anything that's in the SRD, in the system resource document, which is basically like a stripped down version of the, the Player's Handbook Monster Manual and Dungeon Master's Guide. You can use any of the material in there in your game, including copying and pasting direct text out of it. So it means that we can make books that we know are compatible with the fifth edition of D&D. We can't call them D&D, but we could say compatible with 5e, and you see this a lot. And we can even use stat blocks directly out of the SRD and put it in our games. So that's what the SRD and the OGL are. And there's whole piles of questions about that. So, so if they don't do an SRD, we could still write to the old one and we'll probably be okay, especially if it's backward compatible. Then what if they did a a new version that was radically different than the old version? It was not backward compatible. If they do an OGL and an SRD for it, if they update the SRD with this new one, that means we write to the new SRD and we follow along with their new versions of the game. That's probably okay too. It means that we'd be leaving behind the 5e stuff. But we could still write for it and it would work out. And then the final quadrant was they do not release a new SRD and they do release a new version of the game. And this is essentially what happened in the fourth edition of D&D. They did not put out a open gaming license for the fourth edition of D&D. And that's what created Pathfinder because Paizo said we used to support the OGL. We wrote towards the OGL. But now you're saying the OGL isn't compatible with the new version of the game, which means we need to have a new version of the game that we can write to on our own. And that created Paizo. That might be a reason why they do do put out a a new OGL and a new SRD is because not doing so created Pathfinder, right? And that was a big competitor to D&D. So the answer sounds like it is in one of the two quadrants, one of the two good quadrants, right that it is either it, it sounds like it's backward compatible they said it was so we can assume that they're not lying and that they so whether they put out an srd or not whether they update the srd or not whether they update the system resource document or not we can still write to the old one and probably be compatible with the new stuff and that's fine and then if they do an srd that would be great too so that means from a designer perspective as somebody who's going to write adventures for it as somebody who has written adventures for it as somebody who continues to want to develop new products that support dnd and Right. And most other designers I think are okay. There were some people who I think were th- like thinking about writing some like in-depth character-based option kind of stuff, or sort of their version of 5e that now I'm like, oh, maybe I don't want to do that. Right. But then there are others who are like, I don't really care. So two examples. I know that MCDM has talked about wanting to do their own kind of take on probably on 5e. And I know that Nworld is doing level up. And both of these are newish. Third party, fifth edition compatible, complete RPG systems. I'm certain neither of them and neither of those groups care about this. They're they're going forward with their own anyway. And the reason they can do this, because they have their own audience, right? They can just sell to their people. Their 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 fans will buy it. And their fans are enough to support the development of it. They don't have to be the new DD, right? They can just be themselves. And so they're fine, right? So that so that works. Yeah. So cool. I'm excited about it. And, and so then I thought about it and I sat back and I'm like, how do I feel about this? And I feel good. I, I am a neophile. Uh, so Monty Cook talked about something that he read from Robert Anton Wilson. Robert Anton Wilson is my father's co-author for a book, Illuminatus. And in Illuminatus, my father, Robert Shea, and Robert Anton Wilson both describe neophiles and neophytes that that, that you can if you were going to have the false dichotomy of the world of who likes new things and who hates new things. You have neophiles and neophytes. I am a neophile. I love new things. I'm excited to see new things come out in the future. Some of them are bad. Some of them are good. Some of them don't quite work out. I don't care. I'm, I'm excited to see what they do. So I'm excited for this. And I'm excited for this for a couple of reasons which we're gonna talk about uh, in a minute, because boy, I could just talk, we were, we were, I don't know how much show we're gonna get through today. So one of the other things, and so when we think about what they're going to do, right? I think people who know me and know the kind of stuff that I'm interested in, I don't pay too much attention to character option stuff. Lots of people care very deeply about character option stuff. And I think character option stuff is tremendously important, but it's not my specialty, so I'm not going to worry about it. So what they're going to do with Rangers... Go, I'm sure there are Reddit threads where you can go and you can learn about what people want about rangers. I'm sure that there's 50 YouTube videos about what they ought to do about rangers. I'm not going to be one of them because it's not my, that's not my bag. There's lots of areas of the world that I'm not involved in. There are areas of the world I am involved in. One area that I am involved in is monster design. I'm very interested in monster design because as a DM, I use lots of monsters and I want monsters to be cool. And monsters have not been perfect in fifth edition. I will never be one of these jackasses who says, D&D needs to do X, right? I see it often. I see tweets and I see Reddit threads all the time. D&D needs to do X. And X is that thing I want it to do, right? And the answer is, no, they don't. A, they don't need to do anything at all. They could shift their entire strategy towards the support of nerds candy, right? They could say, we're done with this RPG stuff. Nerds has turned out to be the most profitable arm of D&D. So we're just focusing on D&D nerds. And that's what we're going to do. Nerds candies. Nerds D&D candies. That's our future D&D. They could do that. And you don't get to say anything about it because they're a private company or a public company. If you're a shareholder, you get to vote. But other than that, that's it, right? They can do whatever they want. The other one is they don't need to, to keep D&D popular because D&D is really popular. So the idea like D&D needs to fix Rangers. Nope. You know why? Because d and is really popular and Rangers have been screwed up and that's argue you could argue about that since the beginning of fifth edition so no six years it's doubled every two years so anything you think they need to do they don't need to do because it's been very successful thus far they really don't need to do anything right now what do they need to do to keep that level of growth oh i don't know and i don't really like that question and we'll get into why but anytime you see somebody that says DD needs to do X, you can do whatever you want. But I I, I tune out immediately because it's like this person is not understanding DD. So I say that because it's like, doesn't DD need to fix the monsters in Volos and Morton Canaans? No, they don't. Are they going to? It appears so. And I'm glad they are because I feel like they would be better if they did fix them. Do they need to? No. Should they? I don't know. That's up to them. Am I happy they are? Yes, I am happy they are. So let's talk about that. So in early 2022, this is exciting because this is only like four months away, right? In early 2022, Wizards of the Coast is putting out a new box set. In this box set, it is going to include three books. Xanathar's Guide to Everything, Volo's Guide, Xanathar's Guide, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. I had to look at my shelf because I don't know what it says. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and Mordenkainen's Guide to Monsters of the Multiverse. And it's coming in a big box set. It's going to be like 170 bucks or whatever. And... The two of those three books are just reprints of the existing books. And the third book is monsters of the multiverse before we get into it. Yeah. That, that strategy sucks, right? I don't, I don't, I think that's lame. I think the idea that they're putting out the book, I think that the idea that they're putting out a new book that I desperately want, but I have to buy two books I already own in order to get it kind of blows that that said, I have a budget that I'm allowed to spend on this stuff and I'm definitely buying it. Probably. I don't know that I would have to, cause I bet you D and D beyond will update with the new monsters, but we'll talk about that. We've got so much to talk about. I don't know how we're going to get through everything. So that sucks. They should just put out the new book. And they could go ahead and put out all three books together. The idea that, oh, well, it will be out separately. It will be out separately later. Oh, come on. Right? What is that? Like, that is so clearly like a, just a big cash grab. And do they need it? They have like five designers on a book that's gotten five times more popular. Give me a break. Right? That blows. So come on right now they are also putting it out in a special edition and that's fine like i people like me i like my special edition covers so even though they're putting it out in a box set they are putting it on a box set that is a special edition box set i'm gonna buy the special edition box set i probably would have bought it anyway because i kind of like to have the special editions but it is kind of lame that i'm gonna have i got a special edition xanathars a special edition and i'm about to get another special edition xanathars and special edition Tashas. i don't even have the normal ones yet right but I have a budget that I'm allowed to spend on a lot of d stuff, so I can do it. And you've got to wait for separate books. That's not so bad. And you still have the old ones. So I don't think it's a big deal. But it sucks. That sucks, right? That's just, you know, that's just lame. However, lameness aside, let's look at monster design. So they talked about it. They had a panel. Jeremy Crawford talked about it in the same panel. That's a really good panel, that 40-minute panel. Really good one. And they talk about some of the designs. And some of the designs, I think we got some screenshots. These are not real easy to see. So there were there were a few there were a few screenshots of monsters like what's the difference so what is mul- monsters of the multiverse looks like it is going to be reprints of monsters from Morden Kanan's guide Morden guide whatever the hell the Morden Kanan book was I don't remember the name of it the Morden Kanan monster book and the Folo monster book all those monsters are going to be packed into this one big book probably without the lore which is cool because that means the old books still the lore in the old books is still really valuable and Tomophos Morden Kanan's thank you. And, and they're redoing the monsters and they're rebuilding them around the the newer monster design that you can see in books like Wild Beyond the Witchlight, probably the new Fizban's Guide, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons, Van Richten's Guide. These, these books have a new, have kind of a new style of how they do monsters, fully backward compatible with the old ones, but a new style. And the big style is, and we'll, we'll take a look at the, so it's going to be really hard to see. We're going to. This is not going to be great cuz like this is as high resolution as we can get. We're doing some like CSI level investigation here, right? So an example is the Warlock of the Great Old One and what they're doing here. So, let's pull up. We'll look at the Old One and at least we have a decent looking stat block for that guy, right? So this is the Warlock of the old, of the Great Old One. And if you notice like it's a CR 6 and it has like when when it, when you look at the CR 6 abilities, well, obviously it has this action section, right? And it's a dagger hit, plus five to hit for four damage, one attack, right? So you're like, see, a, you know, challenge rating six with a plus five. Well, that's because the challenge rating of the Great Old One Warlock isn't in its actions, it's in the spellcasting features. The fact that it's a quote unquote 14th level spellcaster, plus seven to hit with spell attacks, DC 15, pretty high. It's got Eldric Blast, but you have to remember that, El- oh, Eldric Blast at, at 14th level, that's three blasts, right? You got to remember that. You know, all these different ones, you know, you got to remember how like all this kind of plays out, right? One to fifth level, that means they scale these up, right? So then if they're going to cast spells like Crown of Madness, you got to know that it's going to scale up as they level up. So there's all of the power of the Great Old One Warlock is packed in these Spells, which is fine when you're playing on dd beyond because you can say, oh vampiric touch let me go look at that okay vampiric touch is a third level spell ah but it can increase and because it can increase that means it's actually not 3d6 necrotic it would be 5d6 necrotic right so that's complicated it makes these guys hard to run the worst case for me and i i've kind of determined this uh, i love liches liches are my favorite monster but running a lich in 5e is really challenging because again it's a cr21 right and it's got like okay it can cast a cantrip it can do paralyzing touch it's got a frightening gaze but everybody's immune to frightened disrupt life you know a paralyzing touch all of its powers are in these spells and you have to know like which ones i should use which ones are the right ones there's a lot of effort so what jeremy crawford said is that the the way that many fifth or may, the way that some fifth edition monsters have been designed in the past is that they were really hard for dms to run them at their expected challenge rating. So he didn't say the monsters are weak. And I think some of them are weak. His argument is monsters are, it's, it's hard to run certain monsters at their challenge level. And he could be right. Like how good do you have to be to run a lich at CR 21 with all of these spells. Like it's really easy to like throw a disintegrate out there and miss the attack. And that is not a CR 21's level of attack, right? I I cast power word kill from a lich and I forgot that the guy had 105 hit points. It didn't work at all. There's a whole action and a ninth level spell slot missed because I wasn't paying attention as a player or as a DM, right? So the, the it, there, there are examples of monsters. This monster is just too hard to run. So they're talking about how they're going to take a monster like that. What did I just do? I just screwed everything up. Is that better? Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm not responsible for the fact, I, I apologize, but I am not responsible for the fact that, is, that this is all crazy blurry because you can't really see it, right? But we could kind of read a little, the problem this is, this is a screenshot from a YouTube video, right? So the resolution blows. Same CR level, same hit points, a lot of it. Whispering Aura is still there, the same Whispering Aura that the other Warlock had. But now instead, it has the spellcasting features, right? It's got a bunch of spellcasting features down here but but its main attacks the warlock makes two dagger attacks right dagger attack is plus something i don't know what it is i assume that's pretty good plus something to hit five damage plus 10 psychic damage per hit and it's either a melee or ranged attack it can either do it can stab you or can throw a dagger and it can do it twice um her cab says i believe you can find better quality pictures on twitter if you can find one and you can paste it here i will certainly pull it up but what they essentially did is they made the actions of the warlock now up to par with the challenge rating of the monster. So that is good, right? They talk about another another good example that they do is the priest, right? There's a war priest. Again, sorry for the oh, the war priest I actually have here, war priest is better because we actually have a somebody made a a stat block of this. They they recreated it in the uh, builder. So the old war priest is from Volo's guide. Both of these are Volo's guide, you know, creatures from Volo's Guide, right? war cr9 pretty high right 117 hit points but again multi-attack makes two melee attacks plus seven to hit 10 bludgeoning to damage so 20 damage is not a cr9 level of damage guided strike priest gains plus 10 bonus on attack roll okay that's kind of cool that's a reaction interesting so it can do a reaction on its own turn okay but most of its abilities to to be a cr9 are are trapped in spells spirit guardians spiritual weapon Banishment, Flame Strike, right? It's all sort of trapped in the spellcasting section. So their new design, same hit points, a lot of the same stuff, multi-attack, two maul attacks, great. This time it does plus seven to hit, one target, blo- 10 bludgeoning damage, plus 10 radiant. Double the amount of damage it does on its attacks, right? A big, big, powerful attack. Holy Fire, uh, Priest targets one creature you can see within 60 feet, DC 15, saving through a failed, takes 12 radiant damage and is blinded. But if you look... The Warproof attacks, and it uses Holy Fire. Really cool. I have a question, and maybe people in the chat can help me out. Uh, does this mean that they can use Holy Fire before they do the mall attacks, or the mall attacks have to have to come first? Like, makes two of mall attacks and uses Holy Fire. Can it mix those up, or does it have to happen in that order? I, I'm, I'm not sure. It still has spellcasting, so it still has banishment. It still has... It, it lost... It still has flame strike. It still has it. It lost spirit guardians and spirit weapon, which is probably okay because those are kind of hard to drop in there. It has a healing light, so it can actually heal allies. Right, priest or one creature of his choice regains twelve hit points. Healing light recharges for or six bonus action, so it can do a lot of stuffing around. Look at the size of the stat block, way smaller, right? So, yeah. Uh, so I like the stat block design intent It reduces friction. Yes, depends on how much players have annoyed you with the session. Yeah, right. So I would probably because I'm a Dick, I would probably do Holy Fire first. You hit him with Holy Fire, blind them, and then you hit him with the Maul attacks and you get advantage on the attacks, and then you're doing 40 points of advantage. And if you crit, it's a boatload more hit points. This makes the Warpriest really, really scary, right? Really good. CR9, that's a solid CR9, and it's not hard to run. So these are the kinds of things that they showed as examples of new monster design that is in Monsters of the Multiverse. Now, of course, that also means that's likely the new monster design they are considering for the new core books. So from that, we can dissect where they're going. And that pleases me. It pleases me in a couple of ways. One is I like the new design and I'm happy with it. And so I will be interested to see where they go. Uh, with the new monster book, both the new one. And I, I'm happy they're redoing Volos and Mordenkainen because those monsters needed a lot of help. I was disappointed with the monsters. I love the lore in those books, but the monsters, like, I don't really use them because they're kind of a pain in the ass. They're either a pain in the ass or their CR is all over the place. So I'm really happy that they're that they're taking care of that. That is, all, that is all really good. Then they mentioned something else. One of the reasons why I'm happy about this is that whatever they do, if they really, really, really dick it up, I don't care. I've got a monster manual right here, right? I got my monster manual, right? It's right here. They're not coming. Jeremy Crawford's not coming over to take it. I've got it right here. And it's got monsters that I have used for six years and I'm happy, right? I've been playing and I'm happy. So whatever they do, it can't be worse than what they have because I already have it. That sounds bad. It sounds like they can't do any worse than what they've done, What they did really worked well, which means it can stay work. And let's say they make terrible choices. It's okay because I got the old ones. I'm happy, right? My books are on my shelf and I can run it the way I run it. So we don't have to get too bent out of shape because there's a fifth edition. It's already out. You already have the books. There's already an SRD. There's lots of digital tools that use the SRD and we'll, and we'll, they'll still be there. So we have a version of D&D. And what this means is like, Whatever Wizards of the Coast, I've, I've brought this up before, uh, and in the chat, we will see which of you gets it right. What is Mike's rule for staying happy about D&D? Mike has a rule about staying happy with D&D. Oh, my mom's here. Hey, mom, I'm not swearing. The people in chat are lying. I'm not swearing. The rule is, some people might actually post it in the rule. Yes, Rose has it. Don't let Watsy dictate your happiness with D&D. D&D is D&D. What WOTC does is what WOTC does. They are separate things. WOTC would love you to believe that they control D&D. They do not control D&D. You control d and I control D&D. My wife controls D&D. Every single group controls their version of D&D and they cannot take it away from us, right? And that is powerful. A great way, in my opinion, a great way to think about Wizards of the Coast is to think of them like a third party producer. Think of them along the lines of you have Wizards of the Coast, you have Monty Cook, you have Kobold Press, you have 2C Gaming, you know, you have Nord Games, you have, you know, you have N-World, you have MCDM, right? That there is lots of different publishers of d d stuff the wizards of the coast owns the brand so what they can do with the brand is up to them they're the only one that can publish a hardcover book that has the DD logo on the cover but that doesn't matter really right because we can still buy lots of stuff so i like to think about wizards of the coast the same way that i think about a third party producer they're a really good one right they're a tremendous producer of DD stuff they're doing great work Wild Beyond the Witchlight is a great book. Van Richten's Guide is a great book. They're making great books. I will always certainly pay attention to them. But it, I'm not going to... I'm trying. And I'm not perfect at this either. I get upset too. Right? I'm trying to remember that w- the decisions that they make are up to them. And I don't have control over it. And they're not asking my opinions on it. And they do in the surveys. And I fill out the surveys, right? And you can fill out the surveys as well. But, you know, they... They're not asking. And so if I don't have control over it, I need to find a way to be okay with whatever they do. And the way I'm okay is like I have all not only do I have fifth edition DD, I've got five versions of D&D in this room with me. And I could play any of them and I'd be happy. Maybe more. Six versions? I think I got six versions of DD in this room. So I could play, I could play anything I want, right? And this gets into the difference between a game like World of Warcraft and DD, right? And it's hard. Sometimes it's hard for us to think about the difference, but it really, really matters. If Blizzard decided to radically change World of Warcraft, none of us could do anything about it. The game is going to change. Your game is going to change. You can't play the old way, right? The people that demanded a classic server didn't have the option to play a classic server on their own, right? They couldn't do it that way. So the game fundamentally changed. D&D cannot fundamentally change. The core unit of D&D is a group, six people roughly, but it could be as few as two. Right? Two to six people. That is the core unit of DD. And whatever happens inside that core unit of DD is completely independent from what happens to the core unit of DD for anybody else. They are, they are completely disassociated nodes in a network. They're not even a network, right? Whatever a DM decides they want to do, and if the players are good with it and they all agree, they get to do and run on their own. That includes saying, I like the old version of 5th edition, not the new version of 5th edition, so we're going to stay to the old one. Or I like all versions of 5th edition, but I do not like uh, Tasha's, so I'm not going to include the Tasha's subclasses in, in there. All of us get to pick and choose. We could say, like, I like everything in d d but I am going to house rule that, here, uh, that Heroes Feast is a uh, resistance to poison damage instead of immunity to poison damage. Very small change, but one that I think has a bigger a big effect on the game. So we get to decide what we're going to do independently. And and wizards cannot dictate that. So for them, we had somebody, and I don't want to pick on anybody, and I, I don't really remember who they were anyway, but in Discord who showed up uh, right after the announcement, who said, I'm really upset about the new changes for d and I really don't like what they're doing. I think they're dumbing it down. I think they're taking away a lot of the tactical nuances and interest uh of of monsters right which is a very valid opinion right and that opinion i'm not arguing with other people like it or whatever right but so sorry i got to, i got to talk with somebody who said hey should i play wow and everyone's like no so i'm bringing up wow because i played a lot of wow before i played dnd no i didn't i played dnd during wow i've been playing DD my whole life so they were upset about the monster design. And, and that's absolutely valid. Like, we can look at it and hate it. There are some monsters I love and adore in 5th edition. There's some monsters that drive me bananas, right? And, and and that's probably for everybody, right? And probably different monsters. And I'm sure that will be true with the new ones. I, I seriously doubt that I'm going to pick up Monsters of the Multiverse and open it up and be like, wow, these are all great. And the reason I know this is Bayesian. Like look at the past to try to determine the future it's the best you got right it's not perfect it's a terrible way but you can look at the past van richten's guide right so van richten's guide many of the monsters in there are outstanding monsters i love them but then i look at nosferatu the vampire because i love vampires and then nosferatu hits slow again i'm like it's another guy doing claw attacks right like it's not that exciting really yeah it can throw up it can throw up necrotic stuff that's kind of cool how about some necrotic, how about the old life drain? You remember, I want the second edition, first edition vampires that drained levels. And no, I don't want them to drain levels, but they could have an attack that does necrotic damage that lowers your lowers your hit point total, right? Why don't there vampires that do that, right? Ugh, lame. lame. So, so there are monsters in the past that I'm not crazy about, that they just did, right? And then there are monsters that are outstanding. But regardless of whether you like them or not, you have the old ones. I have the old warlock. The old uh, great old one warlock is in my Volo's guide and I can pull it out from the Volo's guide and that is that is just fine right that works just fine so they cannot change my D&D they can give me new stuff and I can embrace that new stuff or not but they cannot change D&D for you so think about and, and the, the you know the the, the 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 I've been ranting I think for 40 minutes but it's all good because I love D&D and and this is empowering this is empowering stuff you should I feel good when I say this stuff because it makes me feel strong and independent and secure. And I, I am not at the whim of anybody else, right? So we are strong. Say to your camera right now, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it away. No, we have control over our own game and we get to decide what is in there. And, and the new stuff that's coming out is great. Will we either love it? We may love, probably we'll love some of it. Probably we won't love some of it, but it's probably going to be great right and in the meantime we got new stuff we still have all the old stuff it's not going away and we have new stuff why is that bad right that's great so regardless of the fact that the person was very upset about it seemed to be like seemed to be agitated right came in and said i really don't like the new builds and it's like okay that's good and now is a good time to inform them you're not going to get into the next book but now you can talk to them on twitter talk to them do youtube videos right fill out their service and say hey i don't like your monster design because of this so Let them know, but also it's okay because you still have the old, you still have the old ones until you don't. And that's the digital Armageddon. We're going to talk about that. So that was all good. One of the things that they mentioned. So where is the danger? Where does the danger lie in D&D? Is there, is there a danger? And there is. And I'm going to share it with you. During this conversation, they made cagey references. W- Watsi made cagey, KG- and, and I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing Watsi. I, I, I know, I know these, I know some of these people. Like I've met Jeremy Crawford. We've talked. He, he knows about the lazy dungeon master, right? One of the, one of the, like kind of proudest moments i had was at gen con one year i was in the middle of a giant crowd i was actually playing a game and i looked over and i saw jeremy crawford walk by and he kind of made eye contact and i waved and he waved and i was like hey that's kind of nice he probably had remembered seeing my physical appearance before but there's no way he knows who i am right and then later we were walking in the hall i was headed to the dealer hall and it's this crowd and i hear a voice that shouts out lazy dungeon master and I turn and it's freaking Jeremy Crawford. And he run, and, and I said, oh, hey. And I said, I, I had no idea that you even knew who I was. He goes, no, no. Great stuff. Yeah. And then I had to complain to him about Magic Missile. But I was very pleased and he was a very nice guy. And so I like I like these people. Right. I, I like I've met Chris Perkins and they're cool people and they're very, very, very smart. Right. They're also in a company and I don't trust companies. Right. And And again, you get into like, there's a lot of things going on in companies, a lot of things we don't see and a lot of pressure coming from different areas. And it doesn't mean that great people like Dan Dillon, who I know, Chris Perkins, who I know, Jeremy Crawford that I know, you know, I mean, they're not like friends of mine, but I know them, right? I've talked to them. We've talked about D&D. They're, you know, all this stuff. They're great people. That doesn't mean there aren't pressures coming in from different sides that are gonna change things. And those pressures could be time. Those pressures could be delays in process or process issues, right? Like when I look at um, Descendant Avernus, and I look at Rime of the Frostmane. I've been very critical of both of these adventures. And it's not because I think people are dumb or they, that they're bad people that, that made choices that were bad. I think that, they be, that the problems with those adventures were process problems. The writers are great. The creators are great. The, the, the creative directors are great. But the process can get screwed up and bad and, and, and not bad things, but like things can get mixed up and then they they get out. And I think it's one of the reasons why like and Kanan monsters are a little weak. I think something happened at the end and timelines are timelines and you got to get depressed and it's hard and things will get in there that you don't want to get in there. So there's good reasons why this stuff happens. And it's not because they're not really bright, really smart people who love this game as much as we do, because they are. You You can definitely see it when they're talking about it. I've seen it when I've talked to them one on one. They love D&D as much as we love D&D. During the the conversation, though, they brought up the idea of new product formats, dot, 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 right? And they talked about these new product formats. We want to give new formats for products that are going to make it easier for people to use this at the table, something like that. And they always go, like, the book has been around, like, 6,000 years or something, right? That product format works pretty well the book, the physical book, right? It's been around a long time. Gutenberg and the printing press and all that, right? Been around a long time. Whatever, what format do you think you're going to create that you just thought up that's going to be more useful for sharing information than the book? And we know because we've seen it from surveys that they had done in the past and from reports of the surveys that they had done in the past that they are looking at digital stuff. Right? Do they want to do their own VTT? Do they want to do their own online compendium where you get rules, right? They said, we want to put out new campaign stuff, but we're going to do it in new formats that are very exciting. Eh, Right, like somebody brought up, hey, remember second edition when they had three ring binders for, you know, binders full of monsters? And then they were like, yeah, that was terrible. And then they did the monsters compendium and it was back to a a bound book again. So he says, new format is something you don't get to hold in your hand, right? Yeah, some new product formats. The good news is the new core books sound like they're actual books. The other one is monsters of the multiverse is also a physical book. So I'm guessing the stuff that's really important is going to still be available in a physical book. That is my hope we will see, but where could D and D what, where's the real danger of, of D and D what is the Armageddon? And to me, the Armageddon is a set of circumstances that could occur that you can see occurring. I don't think this, I'm not going to make a prediction that it will or won't happen but it's a possi- I think it's safe, safe to say this is a possibility and the possibility is that the hubris of Hasbro and the, hu- the hubris of Wizards of the Coast takes hold that the game is really popular that they attribute to skill what is actually better attributed to luck and they say you know what we can do we're so good at doing this we're also really good at doing anything we could be tennis pros so what we're also going to do is we are probably could be really good at digital stuff right so we're going to, you know, when marketing people and business people see that, they're ge- that they are getting 70 cents on the dollar for players' handbooks that are sold D&D Beyond, I don't know if that's the actual amount, but let's say it is. Let's say it's 70 cents on the dollar, right? That they don't see it as gaining eight, 80 or 70 cents on the dollar. They see it as losing 30 cents on the dollar, right? They're like, we should be selling 100%. We should have our own digital thing. Right. So then they decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make Gleemax 2.0 because Gleemax was such a monstrous hit. Right. We're going to do new Gleemax and we're really good. We're, Wiz- we're Wizards of the Coast. We're the number one producer of RPGs. We're really good. We're so good at, our, at this. We're probably going to be good at this, too. So then they try to make a digital version of D&D, which on its own wouldn't be so bad. But they also control the licenses and they can say, as part of our digital holdings, we're going to stop producing digital content on Roll20 and on Fantasy Grounds and on d and Beyond. d and Beyond in particular will end, I, I, I assume, if they lost the license to D&D, to D&D for D&D Beyond. That is the end of that tool, right? Possibly. They might hedge and say, we're, we're going to let you keep the licenses for all the existing stuff, but not anything new. So if you want the monsters, the multiverse monsters, you got to come to Gleamax 2.0. If you want to, if you want any of the new core books, that's going to be in our system, not in their system. And then it it atrophies, right? And now we're pissed off because we're like, I've got all my stuff there, but I want the new stuff mixed with the old. I don't want to have to go to two different places, right? So... To me, what that would end up doing, and then and then what Wizards thinks is everybody will just move over. Oh, we'll, we'll leave Roll Twenty, we'll leave D&D Beyond, Fantasy Grounds. We're all going to go to the Wizards one. It's going to be great. Everybody's going to come over here. and It's going to be awesome, and it's going to be this perfect system. It's going to have phone and tablets and VR, and it's going to be awesome, right? And and the reality is, no, you're just going to fracture the market, right? You're going to get some people. You're probably going to get a lot of people. You're probably going to make a profit, but your tool is also probably going to suck at first because all tools suck at first, right? Some tools never get out of sucking, right? And and also you're a book publisher right you know and we have a long history of wizards trying to do digital tools and not being very successful at it so you know so you have this problem where they're going to shatter so they're, they're going to bring some audience over there now you've got eight tools right and now you got well i got my dndb Beyond subscription but that's the old stuff and i want the new stuff but i can only get the new stuff there but i want to buy all my old books on the new thing right and you you create problems and then you know people are going to say ah eh, forget it i think i'll just play level up you know, or I'll just go back and play, Matt Colville's been playing a lot of fourth edition. I guess I'll go play some fourth edition, right? So there's a lot of, you can shatter the market because of that, right? And part of this is we, in my opinion, we've become far too dependent upon D&D Beyond. It's a great tool and we love it because it's so easy to use. I use it every time I play d and I use it. I do it on the show, I do it in the prep show. I love it, right? It's great. But I think we're becoming pretty dependent upon it. And I think that if there's some kind of circumstance, if this digital Armageddon comes comes to light and Wizards pulls licenses. To me, the, the Armageddon is when Wizards starts pulling licenses of, of D&D from existing systems or they no longer put out new stuff. There was actually a long period of time before D&D Beyond announced that they would have Tasha's rules in it. Right. And, and and I think it feels like something happened in the background because there had been no reason. They We knew Tasha's was happening, but it was months before D&D Beyond said, oh, we're going to have it over here. And I wondered if it was some kind of weird rene- renegotiation in the back. And I wondered, like, is this going to be the time where they don't put the product out there? And what does it mean if they don't put Tasha's on D&D Beyond? Right. What does it mean if they do that? What does it mean if they don't put the new core books on D&D Beyond? What happens then? Because some people say, forget it. I already bought the books on D&D Beyond. I'm staying with fifth. I'm staying with the old fifth. I'm not going to do the new fifth. Right? Because I like it on this. That might happen. Well, now you've got this fractured market, right? And that could be a real problem for wizards. But guess what? It doesn't matter to us because we still have the books, right? The physical books are still there. We cannot trust that our digital tools are going to be around forever, right? There are a lot. And the other good news is there's lots of good digital tools out there. Lion's Den on the iPhone makes some really outstanding digital tools. So there's lots of different things that you can do. So this to me is probably the most potentially damaging thing to the D&D marketplace and the D&D brand would be wizards trying to pull licenses or no longer extending licenses to third parties for digital products because so many people are are, are dependent on those third party products and it will be a real problem. So we'll see, right? The answer, will that happen? I have no idea. Maybe, I, I, I hope it doesn't, right? I hope that to me, the best case and if anybody wizards of the coast happens to be listening to this not that anybody cares you probably listen to this like yeah we already know right and that's probably true but if you happen to be listening to this to me the best case the thing that would make me very happy is wizards can go ahead and try their digital tools and put that out there and they should continue to put products out on other third-party licenses as well including dna beyond roll 20 and fantasy grounds as long as they are doing all of that well then you're letting your tool compete with the others and if your tool is really that good i'll switch right? But don't make me, don't, don't try to make me switch and don't try to make the marketplace switch because a lot of people won't. And now you've got fiefdoms and you know, different groups out there. So really really interesting what could happen. Right. And, and we'll see the good news is it doesn't matter because I know I can play without any digital tools. And many people like this game without using any digital tools. I've got tons of printed out character sheets that we can use. I know it's easier and there's other digital tools we could use. And I know it'd be a hard switch, but I know that uh, we can do it and that the game will last. Even if this happens, the game will be fine. Right. Well, I'll be fine. I wanna to get to some questions from Patreon. So, patrons of Sly Flourish, every, I've decided that once a month I'm gonna post a new post to Patreon to the Sly Flourish Patreon, asking for questions for videos. And they are either questions we're gonna answer here, or questions that I'm gonna do a tip video on. So. Every month I'm going to put one out. I I, I just put one out for October. I got a lot of really outstanding questions for it. So these are from the older set of questions uh, that we've got, but I'm very excited for that. So let's talk about some questions. So Oscar M asks, how do you get players to flesh out their characters beyond stats, skills, and class features? I'm starting a new campaign, and while we established that the characters come from a particular region, we didn't figure out any bonds between them during our session zero. Uh, really good question so one I was talking I, I brought these questions up to my wife on our walk this morning and we talked about them and one of the things so there's that whole question about bonds so, so there's two parts of this question how do you get characters to think beyond stat skills and features and I think you can do so one one tool that I've used that I like is answering a- asking in-world questions right even in email or one-on-one or during a game you kind of ask them questions about themselves like how do you feel about what how does your character feel about what's been going on is a good a good one that's a good question you could uh, ask questions like during rest when they take when they say like they're in a dungeon and you're gonna take a long rest you could do a dungeon darkest dungeon style you know describe something about your history that remind that you're reminded of based on the current circumstance right and you know, somebody brought up Wild Mount's Heroic Chronicle. I, I'm not familiar with it. I have to I'll have to look that one up. So I think, you know, asking questions of the players that that get away and recalling that some players just aren't really into that. So you might not get any more than like a one sentence thing, right? And sometimes you have to help them out. Like maybe, how do you feel about like, is your drow, you know, lead, ask some leading questions, right? Like how does your drow, how do you think your drow family is going to feel about the fact that now you've got a Mind Flayer symbiote running in your head? Do you think that they're going to be interested in using you as a weapon? Do you think that they'll see you as a threat and try to kill you, right? And you can sort of use, you know, lead them down a couple of paths and then it, and it sort of, it'll sort of spark ideas in their head. The other part of this question though is that the, the, the lack of bonds during a session zero. So I've, I've lately become a big fan of the patron as the key to a bond that you, in, in, in the beginning of an adventure, you have a single patron, you let the players decide which patron they want to follow, but they follow a single patron as a group And then you describe what their relationship is with that patron. So then they describe what the relationship is with that patron. And that sort of kickstarts the campaign, right? That gets them started. But an interesting thing is you don't really need to worry about the bonds between characters or even the bonds between the characters and a patron. Once the game has started, it's probably less important for a long-term campaign because the things that happen during the campaign are going to bury anything that happened previous to it right so you don't really need to worry too much you want something to draw the characters together you want a catalyst that brings the characters together to start a campaign often a, a being hired by a patron or somebody that they know is a good start but that doesn't it's not going to matter too much later on in the game because the events that have occurred in the in the campaign are going to become the history so yeah so so don't worry too much about heavy backstory. Don't worry too much about interconnections. It, it can be fun and there's ways to do it. Like the, 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 the the you know fiasco style relationships are a way to do it. But most of the time, once you're in the campaign, it's going to be the, the, the events that have bound you together in the campaign are going to matter more than the bounds that you made up that never actually happened. I hope that answers your question. Tim S asks, how would you do spiral campaign building differently in an urban setting? I'd love to hear more about your experience with this in, Char, in the Sharn half of your Eberron game. So, uh, a good, that's a good question. The answer is it, it doesn't really change a whole lot, right? That, that you can still do spiral campaign. It, let, you, you can have a city like Sharn, which is really big. You can have a city like Waterdeep, which is really big. You could have one like Tolis, which is really big. And you still have sort of a, you know, where are they right now in the city, right? What's going on in that area of the city? What are the areas that are right around them that are going to matter to them? So you're kind of condensing the horizons. If we think about this two horizons out thing, you're condensing the horizon, but you can still focus on them and then slowly let them expand out. And we were talking about World of Warcraft before. This is something I think World of Warcraft does pretty well. It starts you off in a small town and you kind of learn your way around. And then eventually you get to the bigger city that's connected to your faction in the world, right? And you can do that in a city-based adventure too. You say, we're going to pick one of, Sharn's got all these different, neighborhoods right we're going to pick one neighborhood to start and that's going to be the starting neighborhood and maybe have a small adventure in that neighborhood and then you can sort of spider out to the other neighborhoods they go up to the rich people's area they go down to the cogs you know and you just slowly what you don't want to do is open up the whole world hey where do you want to go here's this map of every place where do you want to go And they're like, oh, right so you think about the quests and that three you know what are the three quests that are going to take them to other parts of the city and then you sort of expand those parts of the city right and you can use books like the Waterdeep City Encounters book, right? And the Eberron book actually has some good encounters encounter stuff in there. You can use the encounters to kind of add flavor to the city. What's an event that occurs when they're going from one place to another? I always like to do that. Like whenever characters are going from one place to another, what's an interesting event that they can run into uh, when they go there? So yeah, so thinking about like, you know, where do they start? And then if you give them a home base, that works really well. Like all of my groups, they had a home base in their big city and they knew they could always return to the home base and they knew the neighborhood around that home base really well. And then it would expand out to other parts of the cities. But you, you treat it the same way. The answer is that the, the the spiral campaign idea, this idea of focusing on the characters and building out from the characters and then thinking two horizons out so that you know you know where what's directly around them that they can see, and then you have an idea about where they might go after that. You can do it just as easily in a city as you can do in Overland. It's still that idea of like what are the three locations that they're going to go to next. You just don't want to open them up. So... Yeah, somebody brings up that TOLUS is such a huge book. Yeah, but TOLUS is a 600 page book, right? I can't prep 600 pages. Like, even though they did it for me, I can't. So I still have to say where they're going to start and what are the three areas that I think they're going to go to and then read up on them. Tim, I hope that answers your question. Pierce S. asks, this will be our last question for the day. Pierce S asks, do you ever try using what I would call meta oh boy, this is gonna be a long one. So we're gonna go a little over today, because I got I got big thoughts. Do you ever try using what I would call meta systems, such as a counter for the number of noisy things the players have done or a list of consequences for bandits escaping the players in a combat scenario? If so, what do you think does and does not work generally? So the, the examples of this kind of thing, I believe where this is going is like, if you're uh, in a heist and you're in the building and you're lo- picking locks and you're sneaking around and you fail, you don't want to have an immediate failure, alert everybody in the building and now you're fighting 96 guards. You want to have failures that that get better or worse. And likewise, if you are fighting a bunch of bandits and some of them are trying to escape, do you put a system in place that determines like what the outcome will be if so many bandits escape? Rather, you know, fewer, if fewer escape, something happens. If more escape, something else happens. There is a good system for this. So there, there's, there's a system that I don't like. There's a system I do like, and then I'll give you a, I'll give you a third. So the system that I don't like is 4E style skill challenges. If you look at how skill challenges are built in fourth edition, they are—they they, kind of take the worst aspects of an abstract system and, 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 and also railroad you at the same time. It's all the bad stuff. So 4e skill, system, skill challenges had uh, a certain number of successes that you had to accomplish before a certain number of failures almost always the numbers of those were completely abstract. It was like, how long do you want the challenge to be? It had nothing to do with what was going on in the world. And then it would have like a list of skills that you would have to follow. And it locked you into those skills in many circumstances. And they said things like, if somebody comes up with something else, you can go with that too. But it was still saying like, I expect you to make so many athletics checks. And where this falls apart was things like, oh, there's a river raft scene. You're riding down the river on your raft and you have to make it through without hitting the rapids and stuff. You have so many. You, know, you can make the athletics checks, and you can make acrobatics checks, and you can make all these different checks, and each one was it already determined what you could do. It was like it was like a move, in a in a in a in a board game, right? And then you're like, I levitate, right? Or I fly. Like I'm casting fly. I'm casting dimension door. I'm getting out of it. I'm going not, I'm not gonna. No, you can't do that, right? You, you know, or I cast Missy step. Well, that maybe we'll count that as one success. So there was this very big abstraction from like ideas that the players would come up with that could circumvent the entire challenge, but you're like, no, you have to follow the challenge the way the challenge is laid out. And that's, you know, that doesn't really work. So if you look at, in my opinion, you look at fourth edition, and I tried them for a long time, right? I played a lot of fourth edition. I kind of know what I'm talking about with this. The, The style of fourth edition skill challenges was very locked down. So I think what people like about skill challenges though is this idea that you can have a number of successes before a number of failures, and instead you build up a dynamic situation. And that I'd like better where, you, have, you think about the situation that's going on in the world, and if there's reasons why there would be a number of successes before a number of failures, that makes sense in the world, you can certainly tie those together. And where I think this really plays out is if you look at Blades in the Dark. So Blades in the Dark has a, uh, a system called like countdown clocks, I think, or something like that. And essentially you draw a circle and you divide it into a number of parts. It could be two parts or four parts or six parts or eight parts. And yeah, timers, right? And an, you, you can have one. So an example would be, and, and you can have multiple timers. You could have, we need to accomplish a thing, and it takes us so much work to accomplish it, before this other thing happens, right? And a, a complicated one would be, you broke into a royal manor, and you're trying to collect evidence to prove that the head of the manor is actually a member of a secret cult. And you need to gather enough evidence to be able to get this. And you're, there's not any one piece of evidence is going to be enough but you need a bunch. So let's say you need 8 pieces of evidence to prove this. You got to sneak into rooms, you got to pick locks, you got to open up drawers, you got to pick up and maybe interrogate people. But you got to get pieces of evidence. And you have to do that before this 8-step clock. The number of failures you have in this 8-step clock show that the guards are becoming more aware of your presence and if you if you hit all 8, that means the whole place is aware that you're there right so those are good ways to kind of track successes and failures and you can you can change those up you can only have only one like you've just, you just you know this thing is you're trying to get through and the only one we're actually tracking is whether or not the guards are going to be alerted so you might say you have basically four chances to for the guards not to be alerted right and then and then accomplish whatever goal you have so that works too but i'll give you another one which is like Instead of a subsystem, recall that your brain is a tremendous simulator of virtual worlds. We are really good at building virtual worlds in our head. It's one of the few things, a few things. It's one of the things our brains are tremendous at. Quantitative stuff, our brains aren't really great at. That's why we got to write stuff down, right? But but qualitative sort of fuzzy fiction simulation of worlds, we're really good at. Everybody's really good at it. Some people simulate worlds and think it's the real one. So in that circumstance, rather than having a system, think about the system you should be thinking about is the way it is in the world, right? What's really going on in the world? Why are the guards not responding right away? How quickly can the guards respond, right? Keep that in your simulated world in your head. And then think about what the characters need to do. And the characters are going to Uh, tell you they're going to give you ideas and you can bring those ideas into your simulated world and then think about what happens so that the the core mechanic to me is the one that really matters and the core mechanic is you describe the situation the character the players describe what they want to do and you describe the result sometimes you roll dice right sometimes you're rolling dice to see whether or not randomness occurs which is also outstanding and you can just use that system and compound it and you know, you you describe the situation. Maybe it's a big situation of what's going on at this manor. Maybe it's a small situation about what's happening in this hallway, in this door that you're working with. The characters describe what they want to do, and you react. And that that ability, that gives lots of freedom to the players to decide how they want to do stuff. And it gives you lots of freedom to think about how the world is going to react. And you don't have to fixate on three successes before, or seven successes before three failures. Who cares, Right? Like, what matters is what's happening right now. And those, the, those successes and failures, the number of those will change depending on what they do. If somebody says, man, I'm having a hard time uh, picking the lock on this door. Why don't we just thunder wave it, right? Okay, you thunderwave. Well, thunder wave, that's one check mark on the guards getting alerted. No, you blew up half a house. All of the guards are now aware. They're all coming for you. And, and the players might say, you know, we could spend four hours dorking around in this manner trying to get into this guy's secret room to prove that he's a cultist or we could just blow the door open with Thunderwave, wave grab his tome and teleport out the window and not care at all about whether the guards are following us and you're like yeah that sounds good right that is you you the things that they bring to you the ideas that they bring to you will shift those dials around so when we fixate too much On these like number of successes before number of failures or these are the only actions that you're allowed to take my wife told me about a game that she just played in recently where it was a chase and she said the the dm brought up the rules of the chase this is a published adventure i guess brought up the rules of the chase and said like you can move if you choose to dash you're going to take a level of exhaustion and they're like why I can dash every other time. Why is now a level of exhaustion? Well, that's that's the way it goes. What about dimension door? Can we dimension door and skip? O-? No, you can't use dimension door. How about misty step? Can we? No, you can't use misty step. Can we just not do it? Like and just let them get away? Well, you can, but then the adventure's over. It's like seriously, like there's you no know, you. You must do this one thing. It was the worst form of railroading, right? And 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 my wife loves most games that she plays, and she's like that sucked, right? So like, yeah, Dragon Heist, right? Dragonheist had the example. And that's why I have a whole recommendation about how to run the chase in Dragon Heist, not as a chase, but as an investigation. And now you got lots of room for things to go different ways and lots of agency for the players to do it. So I believe you can Misty Step in Dimension Door. Well, I believe that the DM, when my wife asked and said, can we Misty Step? They said, no, you cannot, right? You, 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 you do not have, things are moving too quickly for you to be able to use these tools that you would totally want to use. Thus- that's my rant about subsystems. I generally am not a fan of subsystems. Players already have, they already understand the mechanics of D&D. They already have all of these different tools. Every spell is a subsystem. Every action is a subsystem. They already have a bunch of stuff they can do. Instead of coming with a new system, use the core mechanic, stick to the core mechanic, describe the situation. First build the situation in your head, have a good understanding, pre-plan, prep your situation to understand what it's like. Describe that situation to the players. Let them choose the actions that they wanna choose narrate the results if the actions that they're choosing have results that are either that are that are you know have random occurrences then you do roles right and then you get to see what happens based on that so that is my rant on subsystems with that We are going to end today's episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I want to thank all of you for spending all this time with me, hanging out. It's been great fun to talk about the future of D&D, talk about what's going on, to answer these questions on Patreon. Really appreciate it. If you want to help me out and support the show, you can do so in four different ways. One, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Two, you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube. Three you can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash and signing up. And four, you can support my current Kickstarter for the Lazy DM's Companion. All of the links for this are in the show notes below. I want to thank you very much. Have a great day and let's get out there and, and play some D&D.